Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter uh, 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 26 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 909. And this is the second part of the message I started last week. If you remember last week, I had, uh, we had so, so much going on in, in the service that I had to cut to what I was looking, originally going to look at. I cut it short. But if you remember last week, I, I preached for about 35 minutes, and this week is probably going to be about the same length. So it was pretty good that I didn't preach for about an hour and a half when we had that long service last week. I, I'm sure you all would not have been happy with that. Let me give you the context of what we're looking at, of this passage. The events described in this passage, they occurred during a very unique period in church history. It's really only a 10-day period. It might even be less than 10 days. And this is the period between Christ's ascension into heaven and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And this was a time of waiting. And can't we all identify with just the difficulty of waiting. Just in some of our prayer requests, we heard difficulty of waiting. But the truth is, each one of us is waiting for something, whether we're waiting for a job or, or waiting to, to go to college or those who are sick, waiting to, to be healed, waiting, waiting for retirement, waiting for a vacation, uh, you know, waiting to get married, whatever. It is. We're all waiting for something. And we're ultimately what we're waiting for is something only God can do. God to, to, to give us his promise, to fulfill his promises that we, to, to remake this fallen world. That's really what we're waiting for. We're waiting for him to, to remove the frustrations, to remove the pains, to remove the, the sorrows that we all experience. We're waiting for something only God can do. And really, the more we try to, to force the situation, the more frustrated we become. We must wait for God. And although we're waiting, and although what we're waiting for only God can do, this doesn't mean that we're passive when we're waiting. It doesn't mean we're inactive while we're waiting. And this section shows us things that we can do while we wait. And last week we looked at verses 12 through 14, and we saw three things that we were able to do when we wait. And the first thing we saw last week was the disciples, when they were waiting, they were obedient. They were obedient to, to what God had told them to do, what Jesus had told them to do. And he told them not to depart from Jerusalem, not to return to their home. Even when that, that seemed like a logical thing to do, it seemed like it was logical to go home. They obeyed God. And, and that's what we're called to do. Sometimes we won't understand Jesus' rationale, but we are to be obedient to what we knew. And that's what we saw. The second thing we saw the disciples did is while they waited, they met together. They met together in fellowship. They met together in worship. Like we are doing now, they worshiped while they were waiting. And the third thing we saw that the disciples did while they waited is they devoted themselves to prayer. Just like, again, what we've just done, like we do several times a week in this church, devoting ourselves to prayer while we're waiting. Well, today we're going to look at the next three things the disciples did while they were in the upper room waiting for, for the Lord to pour out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26, you know the word of the Lord. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Lord, would you pray for your spirit to be with us? Lord, I pray that you will anoint my words, that I will speak your words. I will speak your truth, your truth with power, your truth with clarity. And Lord, I do pray that each one of us will hear from you and and we will be changed. We will be changed by this encounter of your word read and your word preached, that each one of us will become more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, last week I I read a, a blog post by a pastor named Tim Shorey. And this pastor is currently battling stage 4 prostate cancer. And humanly speaking, his prognosis is not good. And although he has brief periods of relief, for the most part, his life is filled with constant pain. And some of this pain is excruciating. It's quite severe. And he writes, I think, these these blog posts, first and foremost, probably for a way for him to, to process this pain and process this fear that he's going through. And, but I think as, as we read it, it's an encouragement. It was encouragement to me, and I think it's an encouragement to many of others, really to be faithful to the Lord as we're, as we're reading what this person is going through. So here we have a man who, who is really waiting for healing, whether healing in heaven or, or relief from pain or, or earthly healing. And he says each day, each day he needs to learn to wait. In the post, he, he shared something that he wrote actually years before he had cancer, and he called this the, the 6P mode. And he said that this describes really our, our natural response to waiting. You know, when we have to wait for, for whatever it is that we think that we need right now. And, and, and for this man, again, he was waiting for relief from this constant pain. But it could really be anything. It could be waiting for a job. It could be waiting for a spouse. It could be waiting for an opportunity to serve the Lord. It could, it could be waiting for a loved one to come to faith. And when we're waiting, it's easy for us to, to fall into this, what, this 6P mode. Because this is really our natural way of thinking. So this 6P mode, it stands for panic, press, push, punish, pout, and plunge. So a typical preacher, he has to have the alliteration. And when I read this, it so clearly hit me because it really described, as I was reading, it was actually describing what I was going through at the time. Let me read the words of the pastor himself as he wrote in this blog. He says, I'm tempted to panic. For after all, doesn't my cancer or my unbelieving child, or, or broken relationships, or joblessness, or loneliness, or bereavement, or, or house fire, or, or mad, 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 mad world mean that everything is careening wildly out of control and about to come crashing down? 
Doesn't that cause us to want to panic? We think everything is, is going to come crashing down. He says, I'm inclined to push, to demand that whoever or whatever it is that's causing my distress or making me wait, get with my program. Don't we want that? Don't we push to get with my program? He says, I'm inclined to press, to double down on my attempts to, to reason, persuade, coerce, badger, and manipulate others, including God, to get them to see it my way and realize that I obviously know better than they know, including God. I'm tempted to punish, for I see it that there is something the matter with people and or God for putting me through this and making me wait so long. And somebody should pay. He says, I'm tempted to pout, for life is so painfully and pitifully hard and absolutely nobody at all knows the trouble I've seen. And everyone should be able to see that God is picking on me. Everyone has failed me. Oh, woe is me. And this is a man who has cancer. I, I would think that he has the, the, the right to feel that, that, that things are going wrong for him. But then it really put in perspective the things that I'm worried about. And then he says, then finally I plunge, plunge into despair, giving up on it all. For, that's, for what's the use of waiting anymore? There is no hope. And, and I really had to laugh when I read that because I, I was, that was exactly how I was feeling. It perfectly described me. I mean, just ask Lynn. She can, she can confirm that that's how, I, that's how I am. See, when, when God does not act according to my plan or according to, to my timeline, I go through this 6P mode, and I suspect I'm not alone. I suspect that most of us go through the same response. But thankfully, thankfully, Scripture provides another way. Scripture does not leave us to wallow in this natural response. In this passage, we see three additional godly responses displayed by the disciples while they are waiting. So last week, as we looked at verses 12 through 14, we saw the disciples, while they were waiting, they were engaged in obedience, in fellowship, in prayer. Well, the three activities that we're going to look at today, and still, again, it's still in the context, they're in the upper room, in this upper room fellowship. The three that we're going to look at today are preaching, leadership, and Bible study. So preaching, leadership, and Bible study. So let's start off looking at preaching. We see this starting in verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now we notice here, Peter, in standing up and, and preaching this sermon, he's fulfilling a unique role a unique commission that was given to him directly by Jesus, by the risen Lord. And this is what we just heard in our gospel reading from chapter 21 of John. So if you would, just flip back. It should be only a page in your Bible. And we're going to briefly take a look at John 21, verses 15 through 19. So in this incident, Jesus is restoring Peter to service. Remember that on the night that, that Peter was arrested, the night that Jesus was arrested, do you remember... Peter's faith failed that night. He denied his Lord. He didn't deny his Lord just once. He didn't deny his Lord twice. He denied his Lord three times. And after doing this, then Peter realized Jesus looked at him and he, he, he wept bitterly and he repented. Now you've got to love the symmetry of the way Jesus here restores Peter in John 21. See, Peter had denied Jesus three times. That was his sin. That was his failing. And Jesus here gives Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus three times. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I don't think Peter even realized what was going on at this point. 
Because it says that Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him the third time. I don't think he saw it when he said, do you love me? But Jesus is here, is not only forgiving Peter. I believe Peter was forgiven that, that very night that he denied Jesus, when he, when he wept bitterly in repentance. I believe he was forgiven then. What we see in John chapter 1 it is more than forgiveness. It's restoration. Restoration. See, Peter is being restored to service for the kingdom. And that he didn't have a right to. He, he, it would have been just as easy for Jesus to pass over and say, you failed. And, and yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you're going to heaven. But I can't use you anymore. But it, he was restored. It's not the same thing as forgiven. Uh, let me give a good example. This is something that happened uh, years ago when I was working on a session of another church. It was a husband who had uh, violated his marriage vows with his wife. He he'd committed adultery. He um, actually was abusive with his wife. He had, he had a child out of wedlock. And the man truly repented. He actually brought it forward to the church and to his wife. And uh, unfortunately, his, his marriage fell apart. His, his wife had biblical grounds for divorce, and she divorced him. And he did repent, and he was forgiven by the church. He was forgiven by God. He was even forgiven by his wife. But he was not restored to his previous position as, as, as husband to this wife. So there is a difference between forgiveness and restoration. But what we see here, Jesus is restoring Peter to his position of leadership among the disciples. And he's giving Peter a, a specific and important task. And what is this task that he's given to him? What is the mission that Jesus gives Peter in this encounter in John's Gospel? Well, Jesus tells Peter to feed my lambs, to, to tend my sheep, to feed my sheep. So what does this mean? What, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, obviously Jesus is not talking about literal lambs. Jesus didn't have literal lambs, but he's speaking about his disciples. He's speaking about his Christians. He's speaking about his people. He's speaking about Christians. And so what does this mean? Feed my sheep. He's saying Peter is to feed and tend the flock of Christ, of, of, of Christians. See, Peter here is an, an under-shepherd. He, he's under-shepherd to the good shepherd, to Jesus. And here we see Jesus is ordaining Peter to be a pastor. He's to be a pastor. That is basically what the word pastor means. It means shepherd. He is to shepherd his people. Peter here is, is the, the church's first pastor, ordained by Jesus himself. And this is the role that Peter stands up to do, fulfilling in the upper room while, he's, while these disciples, these 120 disciples, are waiting. So what is the, the primary role of the pastor, both now and then? What is the primary role? Well, it's exactly the task that Jesus gave to Peter. It is to feed my sheep. So what does this mean? How is feeding my sheep, how is this done? Well, the sheep are, are fed first and foremost through preaching, through the preaching of God's word. That is how the, the, the sheep are fed. So, so Nathan and, and, and Caleb Brown and I, we're, we're studying this, this small book, this little book here, which is called The Work of a Pastor. And it's by William Still. He's a 20th century Scottish pastor. And, and really the thesis of this book that he says here, and, and, and quote, it says that the pastor being the shepherd of the flock feeds the flock upon God, God's word. The bulk of pastoral work is therefore through the ministry of the word. That's the thesis of this book that we're studying. And this is what we see Peter doing here in Acts chapter 1. Peter is feeding the sheep. He is feeding them on God's word. He is feeding them God's word. Now notice that Peter is not simply 
reading God's Word. He's not simply teaching God's Word. As important as both of those are. Both of these tasks are important, but this is not what preaching is. All preaching involves teaching, but not all teaching is preaching. Sunday school that I mentioned, both for the kids and and both here that Nathan is doing, this is a valuable time. And I encourage you to to join us as we look at the theology of, of the worship and the hymns. But this is teaching. This is not preaching. Theology class tomorrow night as we're going to be going through the confession and asking and answering your theology questions. This is a good time. It's a good time to, 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 to dig into theology, to dig into the confession, to ask these, these deep questions from sermons and on our personal Bible study. And this is important, but this is teaching. This is not preaching. Wednesday night home fellowship group. Great time of prayer and fellowship and, and digging into Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> this is a great time to, to grow our faith, to grow our knowledge of Scripture. And again, I encourage all of you to participate. We'll find spaces for you if you all come there. But this is teaching. This is fellowship. This is not preaching. See, preaching always involves both teaching and exhortation. Exhortation. What is exhortation? Exhortation is a call to do something. Preaching is not merely imparting new knowledge. Preaching is based on God's word. It's based on the truth of God's word. That's its foundation. And this truth must be learned, it must be known, but, this is, but that's not the end of it. This truth must then be applied. And we use this truth to do something, to, 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 to make us think, think differently, to make us act differently, make us speak differently, after we had an encounter with God's word through the preaching. The goal is for us to be changed. The goal of preaching is not simply to inform us, Preaching is not a TED Talk. Preaching is not a a documentary. No, the goal of preaching is to change us. We are to come here, we are to be more like Christ in thought, word, and deed. We are to think more like Christ. We are to speak more like Christ. We are to act more like Christ after we have an encounter with him through the preaching of his word. The Holy Spirit is using the preaching as the means to change us, as the means to conform us more into his image. But preaching is also focused. Preaching has a point. Preaching answers a question. It's not just a general thing. You know, the, the text says this. In seminary, I, I did this great, uh, this great exercise, and I think Nathan and Travis both did this. We would look at a, a scripture, we'd look at it in the original language, and we would write as many observations from that as we can. Sometimes you get 10, 20 observations from this, and they're all different things that this text is saying. This is fun, this is great, but that's not preaching. That is, that, is, that is more like a commentary. That's what a commentary does. It gives you all this information about the text. Preaching then takes all this information, takes this truth of this text, and is used to solve a specific problem. It focuses it. For example, this, this, this sermon I'm preaching right now, we're using this text to solve the problem that we all face. That's the difficulty of waiting. Waiting for God to act. When we, when we are not in control and God is in control, how do we handle that time? That's the problem that, that, that we're looking at this text to, to, to solve for us, to, to give us principles, to show us how to, how to act and how to, how to think, how to speak while we are waiting on God. So the goal of this sermon is really to make us a little bit more like Christ while we wait in this life, while we're waiting for that job, while we're waiting for that healing, to make us a little bit more like Christ. That's the goal of this sermon. Well, what's the specific point of the sermon that Peter's preaching here in the upper room in Acts chapter 1? Well, the problem they had 
Uh, really, the, the concern that was on everyone's mind while they were waiting for Jesus to give them the Holy Spirit, their, their overriding concern is, what do I make of the fact that Jesus was betrayed by one of our own? What do we make of that fact? He was betrayed by one of our own, and not just any follower of, of, of Jesus, not just any disciple, but he was betrayed by one of the twelve. One of his most closest associates had, had betrayed him. And more than this, they, they recognized the significance of, of the number 12. Right? There, were, there were 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is, is a number of completeness. When we, when we preached through Revelation a couple of years ago, we saw 12 was, was a number that we saw uh, frequently mentioned. We don't see 11 mentioned. That's not a, that's not a number of completion. That's actually, that's actually a number of incomplete. So that they were concerned now. Now that Judas was dead, now that Judas was no longer among their, their number, they were anxious. What does this mean? Has God's plan somehow been ruined? Somehow has, has, has Judas's actions taken God by surprise? He didn't know what was going to happen. Is this somehow a victory of, of, of Satan? And all of these things are going through their mind as they're waiting. And Peter here, fulfilling his role as pastor, he addresses the elephant in the room. He knows what's causing anxiety among the congregation while they sit there and wait. And Peter then goes to God's word. And he addresses the problem from God's word the problem that they face, and he addresses it specifically from Scripture. And he specifically applies it to their current situation through preaching. And what Peter is doing is he is feeding Christ's sheep. So let's take a look at, uh, at this sermon in verses 16 through 20. Peter says, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then he says, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed at. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the field was called in their own language, a kadalma, that is field of blood. So this is, he's telling them, this is what they know. He's bringing, this is concern. He said, this had to be, the, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And he goes on, he shows how the scripture had to be fulfilled. For it's written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate, and let them, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his place. And here, here Peter is, is quoting two different passages from the Psalms. The first where he quotes, may his camp become desolate. This is from Psalm 69, verse 25. And this is a Psalm of David. But this is a psalm that's quoted often in the New Testament. And each time it's quoted in the New Testament, it is applied to Jesus. So this, this original context of this was applying to David. And it was, it was really saying that, the, that desolation is the, is the fate of those who oppose God's king, uh, who, who oppose, who are the enemy of the psalmist. But it's applied to Christ. So this is the, this is the fate. Desolation is the fate of the enemy of Christ. But the second quote, let another take his office. This is a quote from Psalm 109.8. And in this psalm, David, again, it's a psalm of David, he's betrayed by one who's close to him, by, by a companion. In verse 4 of this psalm, David says, in return for my love, they accuse me. In verse 5, he says, they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Do you see? He's loving this guy, and this, this, this person is betraying him, is stabbing him on his back. There's, there's nothing more, more painful to go through than to be betrayed by someone you love, someone who's close to you. And this is what we see. In verse 8 of the psalm shows the fate of the betrayer. 
It says, may his days be few. May another take his office. And Peter, in, in the sermon, he is using these two psalms to show together that Judas's betrayal of Jesus did not take Jesus by surprise. It wasn't a surprise. It was predicted in the scriptures. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Now, now Judas, is, 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 he was not a robot. He did this on his own. Judas is, is, it will, will suffer the consequences and the judgment for this. He made this decision, but it didn't take God by surprise. It fulfilled scripture. And this is consistent with Jesus' own words. Right at the Last Supper, he said, I will be betrayed by one of the twelve. And he even pointed out the person who would betray him, the person who would dip his, his food with him at the same time. And this fact should reassure the congregation. See, they were worried about this meaning of, of, Jesus, of Judas's betrayal. But Peter's sermon here is, is comforting them in this affliction. But notice that the sermon doesn't stop there. It's not just a, a sermon of comfort. It's not meant solely to, to comfort these hurting saints while they're waiting. Peter's sermon is also a call to action. At the end of the sermon, the congregation didn't say, well, well, that was interesting. I feel a little bit better. No. They had something to do. What was the thing that they had to do? They had a task. And the task was to, to choose the replacement for Judas. To, to choose the man who would, who would serve along with the twelve. This was their application of the sermon. And this now brings us to the second Second point, the second thing the disciples were doing while they were waiting for God, and that is they were choosing a new leader. And the point here is that really who we follow, who our spiritual leaders are, who our teachers are, who are the people we listen to for guidance, they play a huge role in our spiritual health. See, the truth is a spiritual leader can either lead us in a positive direction or can lead us in a negative direction direction. He either move us closer to Christ or move us further away from him. And spiritual leaders are not just limited to pastors and elders and, and parents and teachers and, and people we know personally. I think sadly in our day, most people are more influenced by people they don't know, by celebrity pastors, by authors, by, by internet influencers than they are by their own pastor and, and by their own elders and their own family members, people who interact with them regularly. I mean, ask, ask Christians who are some of their favorite preachers and teachers and those who've had the most impact on their spiritual life. And I think nine times out of ten, they will mention someone that they don't know, I, I, uh, an author or an internet teacher or historical teachers, uh, or historical figure, someone that they don't know personally. See, the people who have most impacted me are actually people I know personally, and more importantly, people who know me personally, people who can speak into my life as an individual, who, can, who are faithful to, to, to correct me and to, and to pray for me as an individual. Let's next look at this criteria for leadership that, that Peter puts forth. And we see this in verses 21 and 22. Peter says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the criteria that we see here is that he's not a newcomer. He's not someone who came late to the game. He's not someone who jumped on the bandwagon, who's, who's converted after the resurrection. They want someone who was with them for the whole duration, from the beginning, from the baptism of John. That's the, that's the official start of Jesus' ministry. And they want someone who was not just in the beginning, but someone who, who lasted all the way up to the ascension, which had just taken place literally a day ago. 
And in this criteria, we, I think we see an important aspect for choosing a leader. We want someone who has a quantifiable spiritual track record. We want a person who is objectively known. We want a person who is tested. We don't want to take a chance on an unknown. Leadership, spiritual leadership is far too important to trust someone who has not been tested, someone who has not been attested to by others who we know. And notice that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sets forth the criteria of selection. But Peter doesn't put forth the men. We see in verse 23, it says, And they, the congregation, put forth two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice and Matthias. See, these were men who were selected by the congregation. The congregation knew them. The congregation could evaluate these criteria. And they put the men, they nominated these men. And you notice that this process is very similar to the way we choose officers here at Northgate. And you might remember, back in July, the session called for a period of nomination for men to the offices of ruling elder and deacon in this church. And the session made that call to the congregation for nominations. And the criteria, the criteria is not the same as we see used for Peter. We're not nominating a new apostle. Matter of fact, we don't believe the apostle, the officer apostle still exists now. We believe that was a unique role in the early church. It had to be made up of a person who actually had an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And these were the people who served as the foundation of the church. But anyone who's done any building, you know you only lay one foundation. So that foundation has been laid. There are no apostles now in the same sense today. So the criteria used to nominate offices in the church today is found in Paul's epistles of 1 Timothy and Titus. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're given qualifications for both elders and deacons. And in Titus chapter 1, we're given additional qualifications for elders. And this is the criteria given to the congregation for nominating officers. So we had here at North, we had two men nominated during the nomination period. And these then men, these are then examined by the session. And they're based on the character qualifications that we see in Titus and, and 1 Timothy. And if they're approved by the session, then the men are then trained. And then they're examined on their biblical knowledge. They're examined on their knowledge of theology and the book of church order. And then once approved by the session, these men are then brought to the congregation. And the session recommends that they be elected. But they are finally elected or, or ultimately elected by the congregation to their respective office. And it's important and it's a serious process because these officers and these leaders, they really play a crucial role in the church. The spiritual well-being of Christ's sheep is greatly affected by the, the faithfulness and, and the gifting of our leaders. And we're in the middle of this process now, and, and one of the men is already, who have been nominated has already been approved for training. Uh, the other man is actually going to, we're going to meet in the session today and approve him for training as well. And, and I ask you, be, be in prayer for these men. Uh, be in prayer for this process. It's going to take several months, but we hope, that this, we hope to present these men for election to the congregational meeting in December. So why, is, why, is, 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 why do we spend so much time on leadership? Why is, why is leadership so important? Well, leadership is so important because I believe currently this is a very dangerous time for the church. I think we've come from a period when being a Christian was, was seen, for most of our lives, at least those of us older, being a Christian was seen as something positive in this country. I think pretty much up until probably the, the 1990s, around 2000, being a Christian would be good for you, especially here in the South. Being a Christian um, seemed like you were good and honest a noble person. As a matter of fact, if you want to be a politician, you want to get elected, it was almost impossible if you weren't going to a church, if, uh, associated with a church. But that hasn't been the case. Uh, probably from about 2000 to about 2020 or so, it's, it's been 
or, or 2015, it's been maybe neutral at best. It's, it's like, well, that's, if you want to do that, it's great, but you don't have to be a Christian. But now I think it's changed. And I think all that's changed. I think we're now in, in a time when the message of the Bible and the, the message of the church is not only seen as naive. It's not only seen as ignorant. You know, before people would say, they would look down and say, you know, well, they're ignorant, they're simple, but you know, they're basically nice people. I don't think we're seeing that now. Now I think if you're a Christian, it's seen as being immoral. You're being immoral. You are a hater. You are, you are, you, you are seen as, 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 uh, as someone who is a racist or, 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 or even worse. And I think there's huge pressure on all Christians, but especially on Christian leaders to compromise. Compromise on the Bible's teaching in order to avoid the hostility, in order to avoid the ridicule of the secular culture. To, to as, as, as Jack likes to say, to, to, sit at, to get a seat at the cool kids' table. That's what people want. And this is a time for courage. This is a time of conviction for the leaders in God's church. And while we're waiting, we need to, to faithfully pray for our, our leaders. We need to participate in the process of selection and training of leaders. And also, if you're a man in this congregation, you need to ask yourself, you need to pray. Is God call, calling me? Is he calling me, raising me up to leadership in the church? The last thing that we see in this passage for us as we're waiting for God to act that the disciples do while they're waiting is they studied Scripture. They studied Scripture. And we see this explicitly in Peter's, really his intimate knowledge of Scripture that he used in his preaching. But we also see this implicitly in, in the disciples' general theological and scriptural knowledge displayed in how they go about choosing their replacement for Judas. See, the case of, of Peter... In his sermons, he shows an intimate knowledge of the Psalms. He knew not only their original context, not only their original uh, meaning with respect to David, but Peter also knew that all of the scripture points to Christ, just as Jesus taught the disciples on the road to the mazes. And he was, he was able to connect these two Psalms that are referenced here into a current situation, the disciples, and prove from scripture that there was a plan all along and, put, and, and then proceed in this situation. Now, although the Holy Spirit had not been formally poured out on on the church during Pentecost at this time, I believe the Holy Spirit was inspiring Peter's preaching here. The Spirit made this connection for Peter and and, and brought these scriptures to mind to Peter. But the Spirit only works in knowledge that they have. He had to have that knowledge in the first place to put it together. And that's what made Peter an effective preacher. We also see theological knowledge in the the congregation. As a whole, their, their trust in God's sovereignty and his omniscience and the selection of Judas's replacement. And we see this in the prayer in, in verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. They knew that God had chosen. See, the knowledge of God displayed here in this prayer comes from their, their deep, intimate knowledge of Scripture. They knew God had chosen the one. And even the way they ultimately decided upon Matthias as, as a replacement, it comes from Scripture. And some may think that, that this is a pagan practice of casting lots, but this is actually the way they made decisions in the Old Testament. We knew that God do, even directed the lot. We see this in Psalm 16, verse 33. It says the lot is, caught, is cast into the lot, lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. See, my friend, Scripture is our guide. As, as, as I mentioned with the kids, Scripture is our reality, it's our map. It's our map. So again, think of a physical map. An accurate map gives us a picture of the city. It allows us to, to travel from one place to another. 
When we come to a fork in the road, we, we need to make a decision. We look at the map. The map shows us where we are going. Well, the Bible, this is our map. This gives us a map of, of, of spiritual reality. And if we follow this, we will not get lost. And this is especially important in times of waiting. Times when, when God is not following our gender. When God doesn't seem to be following our timeline. Because the reality is it's not God who's out of step. It's us who are out of step. In these times, we need to reorient our thinking based on his word. In God's word alone, this is our most accurate guide. It protects us from going astray, from going down the wrong path as we travel in this fallen world. So let's, let's tie us all. What, what does all this mean? What, what, what is the point of this sermon? What is the application of this sermon? What is our exhortation? What, what are we trying to do? How should we, we think differently? How should we speak differently? How should we act differently in light of this sermon, in light of what we've looked at this morning? Well, first and foremost, you're not a Christian. As with every sermon, come to Christ. That is your only application. Come to Christ. You need Christ. You need to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. We need to acknowledge that we are a sinner before God and we are without hope save in his sovereign mercy. And we are to call out to him. Call to, to trust him. Trust that, that Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And he has given us his perfect righteousness. And because of Christ's merit, because my merit, we are born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone, as described by the authority and promises found in Scripture alone. So if there are any in here, if there are any here who are not a believer, that is your only application, only application in any of my sermons. And if you're not a believer, come speak to me. We can talk more. We can pray about that. But for Christians, what is your application? Well, the first application here is to understand that God speaks to his people. He speaks through us through his Word faithfully preached. Right? We, we ask, how do I, how do I, I want to know about God. Oh, how does God speak to me? I want to hear God speak to me. God's speaking to you now. I'm not saying I'm God, but God is speaking through the word preached. That is what we believe. And if we believe it, don't we want to hear from God? And, 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 and our application is very simple. This is, a, this is a means of grace. We should be here wanting to hear the word of God preached. We should want that. And the word of God is preached both in the morning and the evening. So if, if, if I came to you and said, God is going to speak to you this week, all you need to do is show up at 11 o'clock and at 5.15. Would you say, well, you know, you know I, I'd rather be gardening. I'd rather be walking. You know, I, I have to work all week. If I said God was going to speak, that is what is happening. Do we, we believe this? Do we believe that God is speaking now? Or you think that I'm just up here waving my hands and meaning nonsense? Do we believe this? And if we believe this, we will act like we believe it. Which means we will get our butts in the seats. That's what it means. Do we believe that this is? And we've got to ask ourselves, do I believe that God speaks through preaching? And if you look at most Christians, I don't think we believe it. I don't think we believe it. I think it's just a nice thing for us to do. I don't think we believe it. God speaks through his word. That's our first application. Our second application is choose godly leaders. We need godly leaders. This is a difficult time. And pray for these men. Pray for Jack. Pray for Nathan. Pray for Mike. Pray for Ben. They need it. They, Satan comes after us. Pray for me. Satan comes after us. You will not believe. You will not believe unless you've been there. I didn't know before I was there. You will not believe the spiritual attacks. Pray for your leaders. Because we are praying for you. That is what we do. We are, we are guarding. There are wolves that are trying to destroy you. 
They are out there. They are trying to destroy you. They are trying to destroy us. And we are trying to guard. So be praying for that. That is our second application. Our last application And this is that every single Christian, we must have a working knowledge. We must have a working knowledge of this book. Not just just read it once in a while. We need to know what it says. And it's not just for elders. It's not just for pastors. Every Christian needs to know this book. We must know what it teaches. We must know what it says. We must memorize it. We must know how all the pieces fit together. We must use Scripture to interpret Scripture. This means we must have a theology, a systematic theology. See, R.C. Sproul said, the question is not whether you know theology or not. He said, everyone is a theologian. Everyone has a theology. The question is, do you have a good theology or a bad theology? The question is, is your theology in alignment with this, or is it in alignment with what the culture tells you? And again, sad, sad, I believe most Christians do not have a good theology that's based on the Bible. Just think of how much time you put in reading the Bible. Compare it to how much time you put in watching the news, reading a newspaper, watching TikTok videos, and how much time you spend reading the Bible. Is there any wonder why we don't understand it? But it's not just theology. Do we know theology? Do we know how all Scripture fits together? Do we know how there's a unifying message of Scripture? There's just one message that goes throughout every book of the Bible. And if you don't know that... Six o'clock tomorrow night, we were getting here, and we were going to talk about theology. Do you want to understand how it all fits together? How we can learn? We have a Bible study Wednesday night where we go through verse by verse, digging in, and we, and we, we look at the, the passage in the Old Testament, and we see how it goes together. And, and we never fail to be amazed, amazed how it all fits together. I mean, it just blows our mind. Come to Cadet. We're welcome to come. And, and, and if those times are not available, and we're in a small church, come see me, come see one of the others. We'll meet with you personally. I meet with a couple of people, men personally, that we one-on-one. And, and that's, again, it's advanced. We, we discuss theology. So these are all means that we have. So brothers and sisters, the bottom line, do not leave this morning saying, well, that was an interesting sermon. You know, John got all wild and raved his arms a lot. I, I do that a lot. Don't say I know a little bit more about this passage. No, we need to leave changed. We need to leave changed and determined, determined to take practical advantage of the means of grace to become more and more like Christ. That is what we are called to do. That is the application of the sermon. Let's pray. Father, we do admit that it's so difficult for us to to really take you seriously. We have so many different things competing with our lives. And I pray, Father, that you will make it real. You will make yourself real to us today. And Lord, I pray that you'll change us. I pray that one person will leave here the same. Either they'll walk out of here mad and run away and never want to come back, or they will be changed more like you. Lord, we don't want the status quo. It's too dangerous, too much going on in this world to remain the same. Lord, we pray that you will change us and you will be glorified through us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.